Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we follow the adventures of two small and very important ring bearers in The Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, okay, something you liked, didn't like, want to talk about in the chapter, starting with Sarah, and please say your long story. Yes, okay, so here's the thing. I know that hobbits don't have, like, modern lawnmowers, but, like, the experience of, like, summer afternoons where, you, where you're, like, inside, but windows open and you can hear the lawnmower going back and forth is, like, so ingrained in my life that that's kind of, like, the picture that I have in this chapter is, like, Frodo and Gandalf are having this really serious conversation and outside Sam is mowing the lawn and it's just, like, they're, like, talking and meanwhile you can hear, like, the buzzing back and it's, like, just go back and forth, and then but you, when you've got these really tense moments, but you know that Sam is like really close now. It's just like outside the window, just like ah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I figured like the whole time. <laughs> and then you've got like this sudden and abrupt like stop of the lawnmower right underneath the window, and Gandalf's like, <laughs> um, that should have been in the films. Yeah. Yeah. That entire sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my favorite thing for this chapter was, it was, we got a whole big exposition dump from Gandalf, and I'm enjoying just how, like, great it feels to have this exposition dump after reading The Hobbit. Like, normally this sort of thing would be kind of boring, but since you know all these characters, and also just the way that Gandalf comes across in it, and how Frodo's like, oh no, or like, oh my gosh, what a dastardly guy, this Smeagol person golem. Um, yeah, it was a lot more entertaining than your average expedition. <laughs> um, I loved how the tale of old mad Bilbo became a figure of Hobbit legend. Um, and it seemed like very quickly as well, like everyone just forgot about who Bilbo was, except that he just disappeared, got a lot of money, and then ran back. And uh, it, it made me think of maybe that's like the sort of the Hobbit Santa Claus that he eventually turns into. Because after he's left all the gifts and then he disappeared, which is a thought. That's what I'm going to teach my children. <laughs> yes. Are we okay with this? Tristan wants to teach the household children about Bilbo Claus. I mean, I feel like that's a bridge we can cross later. But it seems peaceful. <laughs> right. We need to find a bunch of short people to dress up as Santa. Because that's not going to be the case. But they have to have like flashbang grenades or whatever the heck you're going <laughs> <laughs> Just like a fireworks show indoors yeah. every year around Christmas. Okay. Yes, it's got to leave in the pure flash. Um, I like my favorite, I got a lot of things I like about this chapter, but how thoughtful and intelligent Sam is established to be right from the outset mm. is something I appreciate. Nice. Sam's on my list of notes to talk about. Um, I like how Sam just bursts into tears at the end, how he's like, finally I'm gonna go see the elves and go outside <laughs> and do stuff, and it's just like, that's so funny to me. Um... Well, I haven't finished the chapter, so shame on me. Um, <laughs> um, and as, like, since I watched the movie as early as yesterday, um, I like how <laughs> um, I like.
uh, it takes its time, but it's not too long. It's not like drawing out. It's just like nice exposition, as some of you said. And as you see the growth of Frodo's desire to, because like in the movie, it's like he loves the Shire and he wants to stay, and then suddenly it's like I'm going. It's like <laughs> where, where is the transition? And I guess if they couldn't put it in the movie the same way, but I, I like how like. I was also um, mostly taken up by um, this, the connection with the movies. Um, in some places, like it's like, oh, it made it worse than that, but other places it made it better. Um, most particularly, I swear, I haven't been dropping no Eve, sir, is not a direct quote, but it's a great one. <laughs> it's way better than. Eavesdropping, Sarah, don't follow me, begging your pardon. I ain't been dropping no eaves. But you're, you're missing the second part of that, which I think makes it better yeah. than what they have though. There ain't no eaves at Bay and that's a fact. Get it? Because it's like a grassy hill. So uh, it's funny. If they, they combined them, it would have been perfect. <laughs> it's like, I ain't been dropping no eaves, sir. There's no eaves at Bay and that's a fact. That would have been like so extra. <laughs> it would have been beautiful. <laughs> I think that would have been best. But like, <laughs> as a response to Gandalf just bodily lifting you into the room, probably reasonable. <laughs> and then also, After um, the lawnmower goes <laughs> <laughs> and then also how this is still so clearly a sequel to The Hobbit in Tolkien's mm-hmm. mind right now. Um, for example, like we vanished the shadow in Mirkwood. Or something like that. That's that's it's only there because he mentioned the shadow of Mirkwood in the Hobbit, right? Um, and in a couple other ways, like the White Council and the and the Wise and things like that. Those are all very Hobbity things to say. Um, I really enjoyed the foreshadowing for Saruman in this chapter. I've forgotten how good that was. This like. Gandalf mentions like twice, it's like, I'm not sure about trusting him. Shouldn't have trusted him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like there was another thing. Oh, also, Frodo's like 50 when he leaves. And presumably, thus, Merry and Pippin are as well. And I'm wondering if this is just. I mean, carry on. Go ahead. If this is just Tolkien being like, hey, old people can go on adventures too. Yeah, because they're still basically young men. Um, well, we actually find out how old Pippin is later, and it's like 33 or something. Like, it's he's less, he's just come of age. Okay. So, and you have Mary's um, age too, and he's between Pippin and Frodo. But, like, that information where Frodo is friends with the younger hobbits applies to Mary and Pippin. Fair enough. It's, it's yeah. just that you also see Mary, like, being a responsible adult when Frodo's just. Turned of age. Yeah, I don't. Which, Sarah will look up how Mary, how old Mary is. Okay. But Pippin, I know, is like significantly older. That explains it. <laughs> I had the impression that Sam was like in his late twenties, but I don't know. No, I'll look it up. I mean, no, he's like younger than Frodo, but he's older than Pippin. Yeah. In our years. Okay. I had an impression that he was like just like a teenager or something. That's Pippin. Yeah, Pippin has like just stopped, excuse me, being a teenager. Okay. Pretty much. 
But Sam was Sam also taking over the gardening. That's true. When Photo turned 33. Yeah. So Sam would have been like a late teenager at that time. So he's probably in his 40s. Yeah, he's probably in his 40s. We need a presentation yes. about everyone's age in all of So, old people can go on an adventure. Proof. So, okay. by old people, we mean Aragorn, he's 87. <laughs> yeah, no, he's 87 and in the prime of his life. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but like, the hobbits are like 40, 50 and in the prime of their lives, so, yeah. I'm Gerard Tolkien. I'm not old. <laughs> like late middle age. Yeah. But not for like not for Dunedain though. For Dunedain he's like forty, I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't he yeah. have to be like hundred and fifty? Yeah. Aragorn lives to be like five hundred. No. You know what? Really? Move on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so let's let's talk about Frodo. Um, before we talk about Sam, um, we talked about, like, so you guys mentioned that, or Eloise mentioned that, you know, Frodo has this build-up where there's his desire to leave the Shire. Bilbo, when he leaves, is he still in love with it? Now Frodo's sort of starting to feel that, um, I don't know, wanderlust, but... The took side. Yeah, the took side. Um, in his case, it's the Brandy Buck side, actually, but... It's the Duck side for them. Yes. Um, so for Tolkien, like, part of the tragedy for Frodo is that he wants an adventure like Bilbo, but that's not what he gets. Do you guys have any thoughts or comments on this? Or in Frodo in general, in this chapter? Who thinks that? That it's a tragedy? I think Bilbo could have had an adventure like Frodo could have had an adventure like Bilbo's Mm -hmm. if he hadn't said yes it would have been We'll even hear you kind of see that the sort of adventure setting up for him especially with his talk with Gandalf is very unlike Bilbo's He's not so much drafted as told that the stakes are now so enormously high that even I can't do it. You're the only one for that. And yet, in some ways, he's less pressured into things than Bilbo was. Uh, Gandalf specifically doesn't tell him what he has to do. He asks Frodo what Frodo thinks he has to do, and then is like, yeah, you're not okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, it's kind of like swimming here, there's that difference between like pressure and Bilbo was straight up forced to a degree. <laughs> he didn't really have that sort of weight of his journey ahead of him. He signed the contract. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have a good point that with Bilbo we see him like there's a pre-planned quest and they've just decided already that he's going on it. Mm-hmm. What we see with Frodo is very different. <laughs> also I think like the foe at the end of the big evil thing that they have to destroy. In The Hobbit, it's the dragon. So yes, it's not nothing, but it's not the evil of the world, you know? It's not all the army of sorrows. It's like 
still one foe against this like, is a Nami of one. Yeah, it's a creature versus evil incarnate. Yeah. So even the creature is the greatest and cheapest of all commanders. Smog is not the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> Just Sorry, Frodo sort of being kind of austere and collected and trying to figure out what he's going to do and all the rest of the people sort of coming with him, which um, it, it feels much more collected and almost reluctant, but like resigned and committed to sort of the future. Whereas I guess what we see in sometimes portrayed in adaptations is just sort of he's going along and he's happy about it and when we see in here is like there's a lot of thought going into all the sort of things and he's a very thinky person which is important i think it's because of the difference of who gets the responsibility of the quest yes because in the other quest like sure he's supposed to steal the stuff but like he's not the main one who needs to resolve the quest the dwarves are the one who's supposed to do that and most importantly sorry is but here like the reason why Gandalf tells him so much about the ring itself, it's like, like with Ben now it comes great responsibility. Like you have this freaking stuff in in and you can resist it. Um, I'm not sure anyone else can. And like that's not gonna be easy. That's not gonna be like if, if you fail, basically everyone's screwed up. So I, I guess that's also why he's less. Like he has a different adventure than Bilbo because Bilbo is like, hey, I'm coming, but like I don't even know if I'm useful. I I don't know what in, what not about adventuring and stuff. But I'm just not as smelly as Wolf, I guess. And but Frodo is like, okay, so you're asking me to carry basically what could tip the balance to the world. That's that's big. Thank you. Yeah, I think that like manifests itself a lot in the fact that Gandalf is like uncertain in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we were talking about the Hobbit, we talked about how Gandalf is kind of like the adult to a bunch of children at times, and that Gandalf needs to, you need to get rid of Gandalf because he's way too in control of everything <laughs> for everyone else to actually like shine. Um, but here we see like a specifically tailored problem that Gandalf cannot solve and doesn't understand and says so. Uh, Tristan or Joseph? Building on point, um, it, it seems like Frodo thinks that he's being like Bilbo for this, but it seems to me that he's much more an analog for Thor in this one. He's the one who's got the thing that needs to be done, mm -hmm. and then he has to go out and find his company, or have his company badger him into letting him come along. <laughs> There's also the idea of an inheritance. Yeah. You inherit an item and you inherit the problem that comes with that item. You inherit the kingship of Erebor and you inherit the problem that comes with that kingship, <laughs> in this case of the dragon, who's <laughs> occupying the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, it is a very similar thing. That's right. 
consider in terms of like Frodo's quest versus Bilbo's quest as well, and how Gandalf presents it, is that Frodo lives in a post-Bilbo world. You see, like, the <clears throat> Bilbo's travel back from out to the Erebor and back is huge for Hobbit culture. It's like the first instance in a whole long time of a Hobbit doing a heroic thing, but also doing a non-Hobbit thing, or like a non-Hobbit in like this sort of like very like cushy rural English lifestyle. And Bilbo, Frodo essentially grew up, him and Mary and Sam and Pippin all grew up with this like Bilbo story that happened kind of within their lifetimes. And so Gandalf probably realizes that, yeah, Bilbo had to be pushed on this quest because he didn't have a precedent. But Frodo does have a precedent. And this quest isn't just larger, but also you have a better understanding perhaps of what a quest entails. So I need to educate you a little bit more on the stakes. And so the Bilbo was the Copernican revolution of gentle hobbity culture. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking that? My thought process was like, um, a post-Bilbo Shire is modernism and a post-Frodo Shire is post-modernism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only slightly kidding. Do we, do we have like a Derrida equivalent to like post-Frodo Shire? Or like, I no, don't. Don't. The Shire no. back to normal. But the, the point, yeah, the sort of relevant point that I want, I want to make with that is that what we are seeing is like the instability of meanings and categories mm. and mm. expectations yeah. that is already happening and is going to continue to happen in the Lord of the Rings um, with regards to, perhaps not with regards to Bilbo's quest, but with regards to the perception of Bilbo's quest mm. and also with regards to the question of like, can you come back? Mm-hmm. Because until... The shot, like the end of The Hobbit is very happy. It's like, yeah, you can come back. And the question of whether you truly can is really only coming up now in Fellowship, where some of Bilbo's loose ends are coming to the surface. Um, there's, oh yeah, my last note is, oh poor Frodo, he doesn't realize how naive his question is that he's going to learn. And that was when Frodo asks Gandalf, like, oh, there was no permanent damage done to Bilbo, was there? <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's also, like, as you said, it's a perception of Bilbo's quest also that um, influenced that because he expected a quest like Bilbo's, but like how he see Bilbo's quest. And mm-hmm. um, Bilbo's, like, he hides a lot about the way um, he probably hides a lot about the pains of the quest, like he lost three friends and like that's not something that happens currently like three friends death in a battle and he saw a battle uh, like he fishing confront the dragon like that yeah you know <laughs> and and so like it's all nice stories and stuff because that's what hobbits expect bit frightening but like in the end you can go sleep on your pillows and you're fine like you frighten the kids and that's all but and so if Frodo has grown as a kid with that Bilbo's quest is like a longer walk than wandering in the Shire yeah. like 
that's another wandering in China, but a wandering in the world. And like you see other people's and habits, wow. <laughs> but, and you drink half wine, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you hide in the door. And, um, but because Bibo, because it's a tale, Bibo didn't say anything, didn't say all of it. And so Frodo doesn't have all of the thing. And also because the quest is different in itself. So I think that's why the tragedy is because like you have the fantasy of things and then the reality hits you in the face. So it's hard. Yeah. It's a Frodo. <laughs> um, adding to that too, like I feel like um, even though Frodo knows like the whole story because he's read the book, like mm -hmm. I feel like the stories that Bilbo actually like tells and retells a lot in the Shire are like you know, Gandalf does fun fireworks. There's a dragon, and that's exciting. Like, I outwitted a dragon. They did some burglary, that sort of, like, daring do. And the Hobbits of the Shire, like, don't really seem to have... You don't get the impression that Bilbo talks about Thorin that much. You don't get the impression that Bilbo talks about the Battle of Five Armies or the fact that his friend dies right in front of him. That doesn't seem to really exist in the Shire's perception of Bilbo. They don't see a figure marked by tragedy. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, also because in the Shire, the story that is told, like, not only is retold from Bilbo's walls, but it's also retold from Hobbit's perspective. So, like, after Bilbo's left, Frodo is like, yes, he has a book, yes, he knows what Bilbo said, but at the same time, the, what he hears about Bilbo and about his quest is, from Hobbit's perspective, like, these stories you can hear by the fire to scare yourself, like they say in the tavern, you know? It's like, yeah, it was a dragon, meh, you know? That's <laughs> what he says. Like, well, his big thing is he has a whole time of Yeah. <laughs> it's not as real like it's still stories it's 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 scary a little bit because you don't know it but like yeah. if bilbo survived it eh, he's back you know and so i think that also blurs the truth of it yeah like that thing about stories we have a thing in this chapter about that mm -hmm. when sam is talking with someone at the green dragon like that exact idea of like they're not real these are the stories that Bilbo made up. He went, he found some money from someone or got an inheritance and then came back and then made up a crazy story about dwarves mm -hmm. and dragons. I mean, in many ways, I'm starting to see a bit of a parallel between Bilbo and Smaug. Hmm. Because Bilbo um, swiftly turns to legend more swiftly than you would think reasonable. In the same way that the people of Lake Town are like, Smog, man, he's probably dead. Big dragons and fancy jewels and giant, giant cords of wealth. They, that didn't happen. Yeah. We're, we're the richest people here. And, and then he comes back, and then Bilbo comes back, and it's called Bilbo the Unassess of the Wealthy. <laughs> Not quite, but the most famous than of his right? like, terrors and tragedies in some ways. So. Bilbo, the cheapest and greatest of calamities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the Hobbiton? Yes! And like to Otho and Lobelia. <laughs> <laughs> and to the economy of the poor Shire. I feel like Bilbo's done a pretty good job of 
of spending all his money rather than hoarding it. Yeah, but what happens when the bubble bursts? You just can't have yeah. like random vectors coming in. You're just assuming that they're going to catch without a stichotomy. They kind of do. They, they yeah. do, yeah. Well, like, no, no, they don't. They don't. Not building we talked about this. Nobody like hoards wealth. Except for to some degree, it's like assets as well. Yeah. But like you literally don't have the means to acquire an absurd amount of wealth over the labor of others. Like the only way to do that is to go on quests and take your Yeah, is to inflate the economy. So it's like a weird type of Oh yeah, since since it does since they don't actually do export, if anything, it's just help the Shire. They seem to they, yeah. like they do a little bit of exporting, like they clearly export pipe weed. Yeah. But they kinda like trade pipe weed for like dwarven alcohol, so <laughs> Um to go back to the original <clears throat> thing of Proto being a tragedy because he has a, he wants to be like Bilbo. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's a good way to contrast Sam and Frodo um and their acceptance of the quest. Um, in that Sam is the real protagonist and not a, um, a tragic hero. Um, because like he wasn't expecting this quest and he didn't have any expectations whatsoever. He just wanted to maybe see an elf, but that's about it. Um, he'd be quite happy um, dropping the leaves for the rest of his life. Do you but then um, but then like the quest comes and he's like, We have to do it. Let's do it guys. And then but Frodo has these expectations. Um, which really do hammer down for the whole thing, right? Like even as they're approaching Mordor, he's like, "This isn't what Bilbo did at all," you know. And he's kind of has that anxiety, and he's like, "What have I gotten myself into?" <laughs> um, but Sam's just like, "Gotta do it," you know. Can be a great story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sam's just a pro. But I really think Sam's acceptance of the quest um, makes him the protagonist. And illustrates even to a greater extent Tolkien's idea that um, you know the the average Joe is the real protagonist of everything. You know, the gardener. The gardener is the real. It, it's just accepting life and just doing it. Though there is there is probably like a point in Sam's mind where like probably he's having she love or something. When he's like, what? I, he's like, like, I just wanted to see an elf. Now look what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Sam wise is like the strongest moment mm-hmm. of everything hitting Sam. Mm-hmm. But y'all can talk about that next year. Sam <laughs> contemplates suicide. <laughs> Alright. Okay, wait. I'm gonna answer your question before we move on. You wanted to know how old people were. Frodo is 50 at the beginning of the story. So like when they go on the quest. Sam is 38. Mary is 36. And Pippin is 20, 28. Oh my god. Wow. Frodo's the old friend. God, yeah, is there old he's the cool old guy, guy who like buys the other hobbit's pipe weed. Which is like, <laughs> he's like the ring. He's like the ring. Yeah. <laughs> like cousin you remember when you were like four who was already an adult? And then you yeah, grew up and now you're friends with them. But pretty close, yeah. So like when Mary is like screening Frodo's calls, like Frodo's just come of age, and Mary is. 14 years younger than him. So he's like 19. In Hobbit years or actually 19? Like 19 in Hobbit years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so he's a teenager. So, so yeah. 
teenager. Pippin is even younger than that. And even Sam, who's starting to take over his father's duties, is like, this is like an apprenticeship. He's like, young. On the other hand, I think Mary and... Like, like Sam is kind of... Sam would be 16 at that point. No, Sam's two years younger than Mary. Sam would be... I'm sorry. Sam would have been 20. 21. So... Which, you know, for us would be kind of like going into trades when you're like 16 or 17, yeah. which makes a lot of sense for Sam. For sure. I think that's pretty appropriate. Mary is like a little weirder, but I also feel that because Mary and Pippin are kind of like princes of the Shire, <laughs> they've sort of grown up in this social environment like their whole lives. <laughs> yeah, but that makes it the interactions with Lobelia so much funnier. Because <laughs> <laughs> now it's not some full-grown hobbit telling Lobelia to leave. It's some kid who's like, you have to go now. <laughs> like, Please get out of this house. me in charge. <laughs> yeah, like, I would never believe a teenager if I was trying to do my business. Like, I was trying to do business and, like, this teenager was like, no, I'm in charge here. Like <laughs> It's like your fourteen year old cousin telling like your great aunt to please get out of the house. Super red, but I love that. I can visualize that stunningly well. <laughs> Are Mary and Pippin on the social hierarchy higher than Frodo? Yeah. Pippin is literally in line to be Thane of the Shire. Wow. Like that's where he is at at the end. Yeah. And Buckland yeah. is like this weird semi-autonomous region. So So are yeah. they like his cousins through the yeah. Brandy box? Uh they're actually yeah. both related to him on both sides. Oh. It's great. Yeah. We're not gonna go into that. Something like that. And to answer your questions about Aragorn, looking forward here. Aragorn lives to be two hundred and ten. Okay. Um, which means that during this, if he's, eight, he's 87 um, during this adventure, which makes him roughly the equivalent of someone in their mid 30s. In their 30s? Yeah. Okay. So he's pretty young. So. Yeah. And so like I said, he's in the prime of his life. Arwen is 3,000 and probably also in her 30s. So. <laughs> the, the question is do the. Uh, don't they actually age slower, or from like, do they mature slower, or do they mature at the same speed, but then just have age a longer later? Story? Yeah, I think for the most part they have a longer prime of life, just mm-hmm. given how much Aragorn's already done. Yeah, because yeah. Aragorn, like, um, Elrond tells Aragorn, pretty young. Elrond tells Aragorn what's going on in his life, and he's like twenty. I kind of assumed that elves were like infants until they were like 20, but I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true either. Anyway, we're going to have to like pin that for now. This is no, good like fodder close. for an end of show presentation. Uh, one, one last thing about yeah. Pippin. During that scene in the party where he's stealing fireworks, yeah. he's 11. He's <laughs> <laughs> starting his life of crime. He's like a toddler. He's got the box of fireworks. Amazing. Like his reaction, like because 
movie again. Uh, but like in the movie, it looks like Mary is a sassy, or like older one, and but, but it looks like the same age. But like now, it makes sense why he's looks so childish and like so reckless. And it's like people are like, yeah, it's fine. And Mary like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Mary is actually like a decade or so older. <laughs> You're gonna get us killed. Please don't do that. <laughs> of Frodo and Gandalf like sitting and looking out at the spring we're reminded that it's spring and we're reminded that Bilbo leaves in the spring so just please keep that in mind for next chapter when we talk about Frodo's departure and how that happens in the autumn it's beautiful I like it alright okay so Sam so we also get our introduction to Sam and I was kind of struck with how we almost kind of know more about Sam than we do about Frodo at this point, just because we've seen him interacting with other people a lot more, like before we get to the Frodo-Gandalf conversation about the ring, at least. So I have a couple questions. Like, So there's a really obvious parallel in Sam, come of age, gardener of Bag End, at the, at the pub, talking to the Miller, who is the other Miller's son. So there's a really obvious parallel between Sam talking to Ted Sandyman and the gaffer in the previous chapter talking to Sandyman Sr. So that's pretty clear. My question is, what is different? What are, what are the striking differences between the gaffer's Sandyman conversation and Sam's Sandyman conversation? And what does that say about Sam? Sam? Right. Um, Sam's concerned with going on going on around the fire and he likes elves. And Gaffer probably would think that's kind of weird. Um, and it also doesn't say explicitly that Sam doesn't like um, Ted Sandyman. Um, <laughs> you get that you get that vibe, but it's not as explicit as the Gaffer. You yeah. had a strong slower. Sam is definitely not as, as worried about fitting in. He's a little more principled as well. He's not just going to roll over and brush it off. But I guess he gets a little bit of that from, from Gaffer too, because he does, you know, put a plug in the rumors that they're trying to be spread. But I think Sam does a, a better job of it and is more persistent about it. Sam looks like, sounds like the guy who's slightly in the middle, like, yeah, Mr. Frodo's not that weird, but at the same time, yeah, like, not yet ready for an adventure and going out of fire, like, in the middle, you know, like, trying to bridge the two, but there's apparently, like, too much of a gap, I feel. He's like, I personally like Mr. Frodo, so, he's nice, and, like, he gets me well, so, I guess. Like, he's not entirely crazy, and like, I'm quite interested because of those stories, you know? Like, it's, it's, I'm curious. He also works for Frodo, so yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah. you can't be whispering things about your employer, too. Yeah, yeah you can. People well, he works for Frodo, but he also genuinely Yeah, I know. Like... Mm -hmm. Tristan, you have one? Um, I would in some ways disagree with Buck. Never, 
like he makes points and then Ted is like but what if no and <laughs> Sam doesn't really make counterpoints to say your, your, your counterpoints are stupid Ted he just kind of moves on to different points um, even though Ted's counterpoints are stupid uh, I don't know I would pin money to hear you say that to someone in actual conversation. <laughs> Your counterpoint is stupid, Ted. <laughs> Find me a guy named Ted whose counterpoints are stupid, and uh, I will take that money. <laughs> I would accept it. I mean, the thing that's really funny here is how the reactions of the hobbits are like determining the. This is so real. Like, this is straight up like a Twitter fight. This is like. <laughs> This is like how Donald Trump became president. This is the most civil Twitter fight ever. Okay, yes, but <laughs> on a very, on a very like much lower level, um, Ted Sandyman is perceived as winning the argument because he plays to the room better than Sam, not because he's actually making counterpoints to Sam because he's not. <laughs> Sam's like, this was explicitly weird because they saw a walking elm tree where there are no elm trees. And Ted Sandyman is like, there aren't any elm trees, you couldn't have seen one. And everyone's like, oh, he won the argument, even though he didn't address Sam's point. So. Ted, your counterpoint is stupid. <laughs> Bye. 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 See you all next yeah, I'll be off in like four minutes. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the example you illustrated is too bad Tristan's not here, so we can't be back and forth. But uh, that is like a good example of where Sam expands upon his point in response to criticism of it. He doesn't just let it drop right off the bat. But there's also like this problem of of knowledge and experience. I think how are we supposed to defend? the existence of dragons because so-and-so said so and they were really far away and we have no proof and I can kind of read decently because I was taught late in life but you know I don't know a whole lot I only have access to what we have in the Shire and we don't care about that stuff yeah I have thoughts on Sam like there's again there's this weird tension in this section between like Sam as every hobbit and Sam as actually really weird by Shire standards. Um, he's like so much more poetic. And this is at a point before we've really established Bilbo as a poetic hobbit. Like, a, not Bilbo, sorry, Frodo. Not Bilbo. Um, Frodo objectively is really jolly. Like, he's making jokes earlier in the chapter with Mary, or actually the last chapter, I think. Um, and he's being like, we haven't really seen him as this poet figure, but like, meanwhile, Sam in the bar is just like half chanting things about the sea. And he's like, I don't know, the like romantic poet of mm. hobbits. And it's so interesting. I love him so much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things I really like about his characterization is because he is like the working class uh, gardener, but he's also really smart and uh, like he writes his own poetry as well, and it's actually pretty good. And <laughs> and he's a pretty decent argumenter as well. So 
Yeah, and he's very like open-minded. And another thing that I really, really like is how at the end of the section, there's that description of a cool, pale evening, quietly fading into night. He walked home under the early stars, whistling softly and thoughtfully. So this is like really shortly after there's that description of how Frodo is eccentric and sometimes people will catch him wandering by himself under the stars. And really shortly after there's this image of Sam walking and singing to himself and thinking about many things that hobbits typically don't under the stars. I think that like the fact that he's from the working class is why he looks so normal in like so more like normal hobbits because like he has to walk to and he's living and stuff so he walks for further so he has less leisure time like further does to do those weird thing but his heart is poetic and I think like like my second point is is like um, as Joseph said like we like they live in a post below <laughs> Shire so I wonder how much being in this atmosphere of Boss Bilbo, walking for Frodo, and having work for Bilbo in his apprenticeship have influenced that poetic part of his. So yeah. Yeah. Well I think I think this characterization of Sam as a bit as just a bit eccentric by Hobbit standards um, is accurate. Um, I think it's also good to say like we, we kind of caricature the Shire as like this extremely rigid um, working class system. Um, but like, and there is a standard, but no social construct is that extremely rigid such that there's no individuals, right? And there's not individuals who, who can like the queer things to an extent, right? And it even says that in the Concerning Hobbits bit, where it's like, and there are, there are definitely some that hobbits and the older families who still know a bit about hobbit lore um, and who, who know a thing or two about the other days. Um, that's, that's still there. So like it's, it's, there's a social construct, but it's not that every hobbit is identical. There's still, there still are individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you see the affinity between Frodo and Sam. This is true. It's really cute. Okay, bye. <laughs> Continue talking so Sarah doesn't get mad. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting, um, and it kind of goes to that the thing you don't necessarily pick up on without somebody opening your eyes to it that Sam is supposed to be the protagonist, is how much more opaque Frodo is to us. Yeah. We don't know anything about what Frodo is really thinking. We know he's wandering around and there's some nighttime walks. But like, how does he really feel? Sam, on the other hand, we have, he's pretty transparent to us. We get a really, a really deep look into how his mind works. My vibe is that that's because Frodo doesn't really know who he is, you know? Like, I think an ongoing theme of the, of the saga, I was about to say trilogy, my, how could I? Um, is, is Frodo um, figuring out who he is? in context of Bilbo, in context of the big world, in context of the Shire. Whereas Sam, Sam knows who he is. You know, he, he's a girl. And he doesn't drop no leaves. 
One of the things is sort of Frodo's always sort of grown up under Bilbo's shadow and he's not a terribly a sort of person just as everyday life we've even seen is generally fairly quiet and so I don't know how much of an identity is really established in the outside world um, and maybe he has a deeper set identity that he keeps to himself but he's mostly known by the other hobbits as like Bilbo's protege he's just a little Bilbo who's running around and um, in that sense, nobody really feels like he has an identity of his own, and that's kind of exemplified in the way he's presented, regardless of his actual. Anyone else want to touch on that anymore, or should I push us into Frodo's conversation with Gandalf? Onwards. Onwards, okay. Um, let's start. I mean, I just want to start with the question of um, Gollum's people, because I noticed this time around, Gandalf says they're kin to the fathers of the fathers of the Stores. Now, according to the tale of years, the Stores settle in what's going to become the Shire um, about 800 years before Deagle finds the ring of power. Meaning that this is, it's not like the Stores now left that space after They've already separated off. So what happened to the people who were living there? Are they just gone? Because they don't have any other mentions of like hobbit-like people living on the other side of the Misty Mountains near the end of it. But that's where Gollum's people lived. And they're not there anymore. Where did they go? Suggestions, imagination. I have often asked myself this question, um, and the best answer I think is um, there are probably still some people there, right? Like, there is so much about Middle Earth and its dwellings that we just have no description of. Um, you know, like um, Southern Eriador, there's gotta be dwellings near Shanford and stuff that we just don't hear about. That's my guess. They're probably still there, and they just happen not to be in the paths of the two journeys. How do we know that they just didn't assimilate to the rest of Hobbit communities? Well, they would, like, how do we know that they didn't move afterwards? Yeah, or... I mean, they might have. We don't know. We don't know. That's the point. The point is, what do you think happened to them? There yeah. weren't any other Hobbit communities around there. Maybe, like, the lone man is alive. Like something happened that kept the ties between them and the Shire. And so like they retreat on themselves. So like there is sort of smallish autonomous community that is well hidden somehow escaped the attention of anyone else around. Because that's so possible that like yeah. middle is big and it's not that populated here, so related to the Shire folk than any other, they would probably largely escape the notice of man or elves who write most of the histories probably and mythologies of the wider area. So only they would know their own history and no one else would know about them and they would be wanting to be seen. So yeah, it's really probable they'd be overlooked. So maybe they just still live there in the 
because yeah, it's they would have they would have split from like the main body of hobbits that Tolkien says they're related to, like a long time before Gollum finds the ring. Over eight, not not only over eight hundred years, but before even the Stuart moved to Dunland, where they were before they moved to the Shire. Like they would have had to split off at that point, basically. So they're pretty like they're more closely related to hobbits than anything else, but still like not that closely related to hobbits. How far up the Anduin are they? Um, my guess is pretty far. Um, you know that they're near a tributary. I looked at the map. Do we have do you guys have maps? I do have one. Yeah. So if you look at your full map of the pillar, um, and you're looking at the Anduin, it says they lived on the border of uh, like the, the wilderness, which is Ravanian. So you can see Ravanian is written like right across Mirkwood. Um, <clears throat> near the Misty Mountains and next to the Great River. The Great River is the Andrew. So you can see really, they're not going to be as far south as Lorien. That's unlikely. So you're looking more northern than, northerly than that, and you've got two streams, possibly three, three streams that go all the way up to the Misty Mountains, that come down from the Misty Mountains to Yandor. The first one, lowest one along the Gladden River, um, is a possibility, but my guess is it's the one further north, above the Karak. Oh yeah. I think they lived around there, um, because we know that when Bilbo and, um, <coughs> like, that's the area where Bilbo and the dwarves get out of the Misty Mountains, right? Yep. Because then they're flowing south to the Karak by the eagles. So my guess is they live around there. That tributary, the one below Langwell, but above Glad River. I mean, in that case, like, it's entirely out of the path of either the Hobbit of there and back again or the Lord of the Rings, right? Like, well, not quite. They would have flown over it mm -hmm. on eagles. But that doesn't mean they probably wouldn't have noticed it. Yeah. And that's not a very well-traveled path either. I guess the only mm -hmm. time you go in is if you have a travel from the Edmores down across um, Merkwood, which I don't know exactly why you would do unless you were going. There could be some trade with Dale, possibly. You know, possibly. over the north side of yeah. over the north side of Merkwood. Yeah. It says we we know that like humans had moved back into the area. It's mentioned in The Hobbit that humans had moved back into that area recently. Um, but presumably, if they were still living there, the person who would know would be Baylor. Yeah, and he never mentions it. He never mentions it. We should ask him. But, you know, it's not like Tolkien problems thinking about that at the time. So anyhow, maybe they're still there. Maybe they moved. Maybe they were wiped out. Maybe they lived in them. Oh my gosh, good to bad raid destroyed them. Possibly. They may have just died. Maybe they moved north to Langwell and just went up to the base of the... Yeah, maybe. Those were the great mountains. Amazon can make an episode about it. <laughs> yes, please, let's. Are you excited? Maybe he and he didn't want to tell that, so he would stay secretly. <laughs> he wanted these conversations. Excellent theorizing. Let's talk about the ring. How does it work? Um, and given that a piece of Sauron is in 
going to be from, like, does it, does the ring act, does it act on the an inanimate object that takes actions? Yeah. I mean, doesn't it slip from Isildur's finger? And more broadly speaking, we have had discussion in Lord of the Rings of like, oh, you were meant to find the ring. There are supernatural powers at hand here. And given Sauron's status as a Maya, it's possible that he's doing that whole thing a little. Yeah. Um, it's a little heavy to get into right off the bat, but... Uh, I mean, I guess we know for sure that it's not Sauron directly, otherwise presumably he would know where it is and be able to find it easier. But definitely maybe a autonomous piece of his his soul trying to trying to do what it can to get back home. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. One of the things that always um, made me think is the One Ring is supposed to be even more powerful than all the others and all the others are shown to have these really interesting powers and supposed to give the people lordship over their land the ability to maybe even control other people. I'm not exactly sure if they mentioned explicitly um, what the powers of the rings are, but and what the ring is capable of in the hands of somebody who has the power to control it could be very impressive and it's possible that the ring does have sort of a mind of its own and one of the things is it definitely corrupts. We know it corrupts, and exactly whether it's doing that of its own will or it's just you are near to a piece of Sauron, which sort of has its obvious effect on you. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. The only, the only rings that we've heard anything about the power that they have are the Elvish rings. Um, Galadriel uses hers to protect her realm, and Elrond uses his for the same. But that's what I know. Yes, you do. What's alive and what's not alive is a really complicated thing in Tolkien. Yeah. Um, we were discussing the Silmarillion last year. Like, are the rivers alive? Are the mountains alive? Are the trees alive? It's. I got. I got nothing. You know. Um, so, and the ring. I. I hesitate to say it's part of Sauron's soul. I hesitate. Um, because I don't think Tolkien would be down for soul splitting. Yeah. That doesn't seem to make sense. It's got to still be um, creation, kind of like Ulmo and the rivers, right? Like the rivers do kind of have a mind of their own, and Ulmo kind of gave that to them. You know, he as, as a valor, he has um, authority to kind of imbue life as we can, a partial life, as we see Owl give partial life to the dwarves. Um, but they're not Uma. The rivers are not Uma. So I think it's a similar thing, where Sauron um, is able to give a partial life, but it's just... I hesitate to say the ring has a mind. I prefer to say it as instinct. It tends towards self-preservation, and I don't think it can do much more than that. I, I like the idea that it doesn't have a mind but instinct, because it's like, yeah, like... It has like this a goal that the, the ring cannot define itself like world, but it walks towards this goal, which is to be with sorrow, I guess, and like help 
full spread. I'm not entirely sure. But um, like, it, it reminds me of like a, a similar artifact, a nefarious artifact that is in another series of books. And it's basically that it's not concrete, but it, it like alters everything towards its goal, even taking big roundabouts. It's like, my goal is that I'm going to use you, and I'm going to warn you, um, will, uh, you desire to do this in my power, you did everything, I'm going to warn it out, and slowly inch it towards my goal because that's what I need. And not, like, not warded like that, but acting like that, through an instinct. Notice in the way it's that they're describing it and the way that the ring is like instinctually alive, it sounds a lot like the way biologists try to define viruses in that like they're not alive but they clearly interact with an environment and are there for their own self-preservation and I guess proliferation, which the ring doesn't really go for. But that they're not alive and heavily dependent on the conscious agency kind of of other other things that would be the brain. And so yeah, not not truly alive, but definitely not 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 alive either. Yeah, one of the things is why does the ring give people who possess it seemingly eternal life? Because that wasn't something that Sauron needed for himself. He already did not have a death coming to him and I mean some of the other things it does it turns a person invisible but it didn't turn Sauron invisible when he put it on so there's some things in the ring that don't seem like things that Sauron maybe even would have explicitly wanted but happened nonetheless and I don't really have a good reason as to why that happens. I think like the thing for not turning invisible is how you control the ring because the other one that does not turn invisible with the ring on is Tumblebadil. That's true. And I think it's like, it proves that Sorrow like, has a control of the ring with the same purpose. Tumblebadil just doesn't care about overpowering it, using it or whatever. It's just a funny thing, kind of thing, you know? But like, that's where like, basically I, I'd say that the, the ring makes invisible people he can, he may control. And that's where it makes sense that Sorrow and Tumblebelly does not do not turn invisible. And for like long lines, I would say that Sorrow does not need it, but the like the longer you stay with someone, the more able you are to manipulate them. And if you keep like if they die like humans like a hundred like hundreds years, which is not like if if they're lucky about in the, in Middle Earth, but um, like you keep changing hands, and it's not good for you because like they might have to, you have to adapt to a new context every time. Keep your host alive yeah. so that you can preserve yourself. Yeah, and he also does not elongate life; he stretches it. So you tires, he tires you by elongating your life and your years and when you're tired you're more a kind like you're more 
uh, weak towards manipulation. I think that's another trick to manipulate. Um, just also, I think in a, in a way it, it gives creatures power to their measure, because uh, this is obviously far later on, but um, I think Sauron is actually afraid that Aragorn would try to claim the ring, uh, right? Like, there's there's the idea there that he might have enough willpower to actually control it and do what he wants with it. But for a hobbit who has no nothing in mind, they're already naturally pretty sneaky. So it's kind of enhancing that natural ability. They're already naturally long-lived. It's kind of enhancing these, these natural properties in an unnatural way. Yeah, that's, I love that theory. I think that makes actually perfect sense for the... I mean, the two people we know who explicitly had a long life and... Uh, and turn invisible were both hobbit-like creatures, so. And I would say even playing off of that, right? Like it's to the measure that they can use it, but the ring also plays off your desires. Yeah. You know, and what does what does Bilbo want? He, he wants to enjoy the good things in life, um, so he can do that forever, supposedly. Um, and you know, he wants to be sneaky, so he's invisible. Um, but in that, the ring is still an evil power. Um, so just like Morgoth, just like Sauron, they can't create. And they can never actually fulfill these desires. They can just corrupt um, and take a thing that's already there and kind of transform it to another purpose, right? That's always what evil does. Evil just corrupts. It can't create. Um, and so the ring can't actually create eternal life um, because that's a good thing. But what it can do is it can stretch out a good that's already there and corrupt it. Yeah, I just had a question about like, why did why did all the elves and kings and dwarves use the other rings if they knew that Sauron's ring would control their rings and like them? And like, did they because the one ring was like lost for so long? Did they think that it was okay to use like their rings and their power or like? Yes. So they didn't. They didn't know at first. That's um, <clears throat> that's a big, a big backstory. But in basic, in basic summary, um, like Sauron was disguising himself as like a friend, right? Um, and he's hanging out with Celebrimbor, who was an elf smith, um, and teaching him to make even greater things. Um, and one of those things are the rings of power. And so they made the rings of power. And they were like, we'll spread them out, we'll give them to people, it'll be great. Um, and then it turned, and then Sauron had tricked Celebrimbor, and so Celebrimbor didn't really realize until it was too late that Sauron had also made this master ring that would control all the other ones. Um, and the elves continued to use theirs because um, Sauron never touched them. Like, Sauron didn't corrupt those rings in and of themselves before he was overthrown. So they can keep using them as long as the one ring hasn't been found. Um, they can keep using them. Uh, if Sauron had the one ring, it would make him powerful enough to also like take, take mastery of the other of the el three elvish rings. Um, but he doesn't have it right now, so they're still safe. Um, yeah, and at the moment the One Ring is created and he attempts to use it, I think the elves sense that sort of disturbance 
Um, so they remove all the rings and they don't use them until the one ring is lost. The dwarves, I think, for some reason aren't really affected. I think that's the lore on that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they have some sort of natural resistance to it. Um, and then the men, I think, had to wear their rings of power for long enough that their lives were stretched out to such a point where he could dominate them fully and turn them into the race, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Don't take any of that as like pure fact, but it should be pretty close. Yeah. Fun thing to do on a Sunday afternoon is read um, of the Rings of Power at mm-hmm. the end of the summer land. So, it's a good read. Okay, nice. Yeah. I like how just the dwarves, like, what happened to the dwarves' rings is just like, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, they were buried, or some dragons ate them. <laughs> Meh. Yeah. The dwarves were fine. It worked out. <laughs> but again, like, um, the way the Borgen rings work, I think, fulfills this, um, confirms this thesis that the rings fulfill your desires, or at least try to, um, and augment your desires, right? So what, what can the dwarven rings do? They can get you some gold. But they also make you want gold more, and it's insatiable, and you take less pleasure in gold than you used to. Um, so it's, 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 it's again evil corrupting a desire while at the same time trying to fulfill it, even though you can't. Um, when you have so much gold, you eventually attract strike. Mm-hmm. So that is unfortunate. Which I think is definitely why the dragon tended to eat them, because they happen to be in massive gold hordes. Thanks. Any other thoughts on the rings of power? So many thoughts. <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> Any other thoughts you really want to share right now on the rings of power? Okay. Um. Did Sophia bring up the end? No. No. Okay. Sam's cousin sees an end. I just thought we should bring that up. Do you think it's an end, or do you think it's an end? Oh, Tolkien says all the end wives died. Yeah, it's in the letters. It's really sad. It's just don't. You should. You gotta, we gotta keep that. Wait, why did I'm they sorry. <laughs> why did they die? Tolkien. He actually says that he doesn't know. <laughs> is how he how he prefaces that. I don't actually know. This is. I sure suspect that they all got burnt to death when Sauron came over that way. <laughs> I think we have to just put this as a shrug of the author. Yeah. Yeah. I choose to have hope. I hope it was Namor. I think they all ran into the Shire. That that would be. That's well. That's what Treebeard thinks, right? Yeah. Like Treebeard thinks they're all over that way. That's true. At, at the moment, I don't think when Tolkien's writing this, I don't think it's crystallized in his mind that the ants are just in Fanghorn. You know, like he's just like you know, Yvanna has some things. Um, I'll put it in. I haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah, and it's just. something with the shrug of the author. Thanks, Greg. Awesome. I thought I'd just bring that up off to the side there. Think about the fact that there was just Ned walking around. <laughs> it's part of a really great foreshadowing in this chapter. This chapter sets up the whole rest of the series so perfectly. So beautifully. I love it. Um, let's talk about Gollum himself now, because um, there are some interesting things that come up about how Gandalf characterizes Gollum. 
suggesting that this is the ring that corrupts, obviously it does corrupt to go a lot further, but Schmeagel is kind of pretty slightly corrupt, or at least a bit of a bad dude before he gets the ring. He hasn't really been in contact with it more than seeing it and decides to strangle Deagle because he wants it. Like, that, I don't know if that can be attributed to the ring really very much at all, given how slowly it, it turned the minds of everyone else that seemed to have it. Deagle didn't seem like particularly murderous or even hiding it away. So it's, it's I, I just didn't remember that from the first time around, that Spiegel was actually kind of bad to begin with, almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, just a massive foreshadowing, I guess. Um, in that I still think Spiegel has a part to play in this story. Well, he kind of saved the day. Spoilers, sorry guys. Spiegel's the one who throws the ring at the flanks. Um, yeah, so, th- so there's the foreshadowing, um, but also I think talking about pity and Smeagol, um is a really big part where the song comes back up from the very start of the Silmarillion. Um, the whole history of Middle-earth is just Iluvatar's song um, and it's this epic fight of good against evil, but Iluvatar is still God, um, is still watching it all, and eventually he stands up and he intervenes a couple times. Um, but it's every single evil thing is there because it makes the good even better somehow in this great story. Um, and so it's this pity. Um, so Gollum is this evil thing, but the pity that comes from it is a very good thing. Um, and that pity leads to more evil because Gollum does some terrible things, which again leads to this greater good. And the song is still there, and Iluvatar is still in charge. I think that comes out. Yeah, and you're thinking of the part where uh, Gandalf says, Bilbo was meant to find it and not by its maker. Bingo. And then I think Gollum still has a greater part to play in this story. curiosity. That's the thing that always stands out to me whenever I read this passage, is that Gandalf characterizes him particularly as someone who's interested in the roots of things and where things come from. Why bother giving it that? Yeah. The way you put it like that, and I, I got Tolkien would have made, I don't know how far psychology was at this point, like Oh, criminology was this one, but like it made me think of some psychopathic description. You want to know, like everything is an object to be decomposed and understand where it comes from, how it works, etc. And that makes you really cold and not really caring for others and yourself in the end. So I don't know. Honestly, I just kind of get a feeling of. Gollum as a dark mirror of Tolkien here, with Tolkien's own obsession with figuring out everything conceivable about his own setting. Yeah. I was gonna say the exact same thing. It's um, this 
recurring theme um, of wanting to go back, wanting to get to the origin, um, wanting to control everything and not paying attention to A, the people around you, and B, the future um, and where you're supposed to go, right? So Gollum is almost a dark Turgon. When Turgon builds Gondolin, and it's great and it's glorious, but he's ignoring the outside world, and a shadow falls upon Gondolin, and and then eventually everybody dies because he wasn't paying attention to people around him, and he wasn't paying attention to the outside world, and he was looking down at himself and at his, the things he likes. And then Gollum is just that plus the plus the ring of power, and gets twisted until Gollum in the end has nothing because he's clinging to the things he likes. Which again, and again, that's a, that's a dark Tolkien movie, I think. Turgon's definitely an image of Tolkien. I'm actually wondering if like, the corruption of the ring is not obsession and like, because Maybe Smeagol at first was like just curious and like that's that's good to be curious about where things come from, but eventually narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down and like he became obsessed with one thing the ring and like I, I don't know how it works with all the characters having the ring, but I feel it could be that because like you say it's dark Tolkien, but like Tolkien extending his world, even though it's messy and it makes gives headaches to so many of us, it's it's still great. It's really interesting and it, maybe it did bad things on the outside, I don't know. Uh, but um, I think what makes it a dark Tolkien is this obsession. Too much of wanting to know, like to the to the point of being oblivious to everything else. Too much of a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's an interesting thing to then expand on when you're looking at how the ring affects other people later, right? The only per the only other vision we get, well, we get two. We get Galadriel's vision uh, or like perspective of what would happen if she had the ring, and then Sam's vision of what would happen if he took the ring. And in both cases, like they become a particular, like a more powerful but more more singularly focused version of themselves, right? Like Sam in particular. Sam's a gardener, and what does he see? The entire world is a garden now. It's <laughs> difficult. Galadriel just wants to rule her own people, to have like her own kingdom, and now she makes the whole world her kingdom, right? <coughs> so you've got a good point there about what the ring does with people's personality and interests. And then again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, um, it's that evil in the ring can't create, and it can't fulfill your desires. It'll just corrupt what's already there, and corruption is making something smaller and smaller and smaller until there's nothing left. 
almost. No such thing as that. Nothing else that I mentioned earlier. It's interesting how, at least from the from what we can tell, um, how little he was affected by eighty years without the ring. Because it seems fairly similar to the way he was when Bilbo ran into him. So it's it just it's it's a weird case of, of really deep permanence. In the effects of the ring. I would say another last point is that Gollum and seeing him as um, a figure of addiction, you know, when he's lost the ring, Gandalf just hears him for a couple seconds and he's muttering, Bangs is in my precious, in my precious, in my precious. And then you realize Gollum's been doing that for 80 years non stop, just muttering to himself, Bangs is Bangs is Bangs. Right, um, and you know that's an image of real depths of addiction, where you are, your person is practically gone because it's just this desire. Um, but then there's also that guilt, right, um, and trying to have a person come back. Uh, sorry, I just want to speak to what Rob said because I he is so old, Gump is so old. Um, <laughs> And you can see, like, the residual effect of the ring and the way that, like, like, it's kept you alive so long, and even when it's gone now, it's, it will drag your life out longer. Bilbo has it for 80 years and lives another 20 or so before he goes to the West. Yeah, because he's got it for... He gives it up. 60 years, right? 60, because... Yeah, 60 years. And lives for another 20 before he goes to the West. Well, at that point, he's ready to go, too. Like, those permanent scars of the ring aren't still keeping him alive. Gollum has it for, what, 500? Gollum has it, yeah, for for about 500 years. Over 500 years. Um... addiction has kept him alive like his obsession with the ring is his link with the ring and like Trezor's residual effect of the ring but at the same time the fact he's like like Bilbo parted with the ring willingly and that's an important point and I'm putting it up right now <laughs> and still it had effect but in the end, he was able to like live like the twenty years without the ring, quite peacefully. Like, but uh, 
golem had like got stolen like the ring got stolen from him and then he got obsessed with return uh, returning returning to him or getting him back or whatever and so i wonder how much it is the residual effect of the ring and how much it is the fact he hasn't really parted with the ring because he still wants it he still wants to find it even if the ring doesn't care anymore about Gollum Gollum is still attached to the ring in the fact that he wants to find it he wants to get it back to have it with him and he eventually travels nearby him when he travels with brother so I'd be curious, you know. So the person almost breaks through again um, as they're traveling in Gondor. Um, Smeagol almost comes back. I know, in fact, he kind of does for, for a little bit at least. I'd be curious to know if that would be possible if he wasn't separated from the room for a few years. You know? Um, was it that's like, there was definitely permanent. There was definitely a long time effect, but was it gradually decreasing such that Smeagol could come back? I think it's not only the fact that he parted with the ring, it's also on further treating Not as a rich creature broken by the ring, but as something before he was mm -hmm. gone. Like, because I, I don't know, like, let's put the, like, do the addiction metaphor that it's like, instead of being treated like someone who's just out of a long run of uh, on meth or whatever, or like whatever drugs, destroying drugs, you treat him as like, I don't know, you Jack, I, like, now you've been Jack and now you're Jack, and like, meth is not part of your life anymore. Kind of thing. So like there's a ring is not part of your life, you're not gone. You were Smeagol, and that's to Smeagol I'm talking. I think you're dead, dead on, right? And then you look at the way halfway houses and stuff work. Um, the main two things they try to do, right, is one, separate you from whatever you're getting out of, um, be it alcohol or um, meth or whatever it might be. Um, and then they treat you with dignity, right? Because how do you recover your dignity? Well, by being treated with dignity. Um, so I, I think it's definitely, I think it was probably a twofold process mm -hmm. of why Smeagol could come back even for a little bit. But I think the proximity of the ring also kind of hindered that too, because it wasn't entirely cut off. Like he knew the ring was just nearby. He just didn't have it. So the temptation to get the ring back was still quite easily fulfilled. Like easily would easily come back and could easily be fulfilled because it's just a habit and he's not that strong, even if he has a gardener as a bodyguard. Like I could just kill them in their sleep and have the ring back. I actually wonder how much of 
this treating Gollum as Migo actually saved Frodo's life, like Frodo's and Sam's life, because how many times he could have just killed them in their sleep, mm-hmm. and Smigol was like, maybe not. And even um, the story of Gollum going down to um, Mordor is left until Moria in the movies. Like, there, there's a lot of things that you know now. I guess that give things more stakes, sort of. But I guess you know where things stand. There isn't that uncertainty. What is? What does he want? What is he doing? Why is he here? What do they know? There's a lot of questions that are just answered in that. The second chapter. Yeah. In a movie, you can't have them just sit down and talk for literal hours. It just doesn't work out that way. Mm, yeah, but you don't have to do it that way, right? You do what they did in The Return of the King. Yeah. If they wanted to. Yeah, yeah the, the, do dropped, the dropped hints of Gollum, like in the first movie, the pro one, like, yes, that's the story of the ring. By the way, this guy got it for like a bit to throw in him. And then he appears in Moya, talk about like how the ring went from Gollum to that's actually in the problem of the movie. And like Gandalf explains a little bit more about how the ring passed from Gollum to Bilbo and how Bilbo did not kill Gollum. And then and then there's the return of the king. So it's like dropped moment by moment. Like so you I think it's also like so it's fresher in your mind. Because they, they, they release movie in years after years, so that if they had dropped everything in the first movie, by the time he's called Smeagol, everyone would be like, Ooh, what? What's the guy? Yeah, I think it's also like, like that. Well, how long apart were the what three volumes published? Oof. I, if I remember well, it was 2001, 2002, 2003. So I'm wondering if people were having similar problems or similar like books. Yeah, but books, if you've read it, you can either like you either borrowed it from the library or bought it, so you can come back to it. Like what the heck? But it's harder know. to do that with the movie. You're right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the movie was written well um, mm-hmm. and even maybe better than. For describing this character, um, close together it looks like. Because like the first July fifty four, November fifty four, yeah. October fifty five. Well, the whole thing was basically finished by the time it went into publishing. Yeah. They just needed to break it up for financial reasons, was it? Um, no, because it was too big to be published. It was it was too big to like bind. Broke broke tokens. 
understood as a trilogy. They could have done the book. There was like the possibility of doing it that way. But I think that a paper shortage after the war yeah. also contributed to their wanting to split it up. Uh, it was it, the cost the cost of publishing it as one bound volume was prohibitive. Kind of as one bound volume. When I first read it, it was too heavy to put on my knees. I had to like have it on stand. We have the technology. This is all three. Oh, I think it's onions. I think it's onions. Could fit the whole thing in like this much, but nobody wants to read it. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only way you could have done it maybe would have been with Bible yeah, thing uh, paper. That's onions. Yep. Okay. It's ripped so easily. <laughs> yes. So soft. So soft. I love it. And the books are so light after. That's not what was being related anymore, but now you know why I created it. Um, so, the last thing I have available to you is to talk a bit more about all of the wild foreshadowing and set up in this chapter. What are all of the different things that we see that later become important? And how did Tolkien manage to get them all of them in there? I think this setup is like actually brilliant. What did you notice that will become relevant later? How difficult it is to throw the ring into the fire. Yeah. Ants. Ants. Elves. Leaving. Elves leaving. Gone. Gone. The black tower is going to be built. Yeah. yeah. Aragorn. Saruman may not be as reliable a source as Gandalf originally thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how the Saruman bit is set up in particular because all of the implications that Saruman is deliberately misleading them are there, but Gandalf doesn't hasn't noticed them yet, right? Like when Gandalf says, "I was still trusting Saruman's sources, but now I'm not." That's not because he doesn't trust Saruman, it's because he thinks that Saruman has had the wrong information. Yeah. And it's like the setup is just right there. Right there. Well, and it really clearly relates Saruman's interest with the rings, but without making it seem obvious in the way like the, the golem, we know too much about it, but with Saruman, it just seems like wise almost if you don't know what happens, maybe. Yeah. And authority still. Gandalf's general demeanor, and then the, uh, the description of what Frodo sees in Especially if you've read The Hobbit, I guess. Yeah. Gandalf's just this guy, and he does his thing, and he's never really worried about anything, and he just hangs out before armies are going to fight. He doesn't care. But now we have a Gandalf who disappears for years at a time and starts looking old and worried, and, and uh, he has a lot of weight on his shoulders. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure if someone's mentioned this before, but I appreciate how chapter two rolls out at such a slower pace than the movies, because like, Gandalf is roaming all across the planet on his feet and sometimes a horse trying to track down this information. It's going to take him a hot minute. Yeah. I also like, also like, hints of hobbits being more than they look like. 
like how resistant they can be, like uh, all roots of the, the root of an old tree, he says, um, even though they look like they just comfy little pillows and like that's all whole things that they can do. And uh, that, which interestingly applies to both Frodo and Sam, but in different ways. The characterization of most of the main characters that will be following the fellowship. Um, also that uh, like Frodo's going to be the one to have to do this yeah. just that line that Gandalf has about um, no one in the history of the ring's existence has been able to actually get it up yeah. um, <coughs> I like how this chapter even sets up for the scouring of the Shire at the very end. Like, this is your introduction to Ted Sandman. You'll see him again at the very end of Return of the King. It's the first mention of Lotho. It's the first mention of Lotho. Um, and I, I like that. I like how it gives you such a solid sense of everything that's coming up. I love that it's foreshadowing, probably like to the extent of Tolkien's knowledge, you know, like I, I just love the concept that Tolkien didn't know what was happening in this story until he wrote it. Um, and he, he didn't have a clear image even of how the ring would get destroyed, right? And he reached the right block in Gondor and then he's like, where are they going to go? I don't know. Um, and so like what we have here is probably as much of an outline as Tolkien probably. Gollum's going to be important. Aragorn's going to be important. That's about all I got. Also, um, there's a mention of like the first War of the Ring and, and the whole like how important people like Gilgamesh have died doing the, what they had to do, and like I think it somehow foreshadows also like the sacrifices that. Whether or not Frodo will witness them, they will happen. Like he'll come back and and then such and such died. There was a big battle there, and so many died. Uh, he's like, I limited the number of battles, but at the same time, they still happen. And even like, yeah, I couldn't save it. Though. I yeah. even though the task is like, yeah save right now because if so get that we are dead like we will like dead or slave because he will not let us be happy and hobbity and busy. Yeah. It really does give you the full scope. Over the course of the chapter Tolkien gives you the full scope of the impact that Sauron's coming back has on the world, right? <laughs> and so if you're looking, you can see all the different people that are going to be involved in Frodo's endeavor, um, even though it's not explicitly stated, right? Like, you hear, you sit, 
specifically that dwarves come bringing bad news. So you know that dwarves will be involved, right? This is affecting the dwarves, and the dwarves have a stake in this. You know about Aragorn. Um, you know that Gollum is with the Wood Elves, and so presumably, so presumably if anything is going to be done about it, the Wood Elves are going to be involved. Um, so you have this really grand scope, and I think it's actually the place that gives you the biggest scope of how Sauron's return is affecting all of Middle Earth. Because without a chapter like this that tells you that, like, this is making things bad for the dwarves, and, like, the wood elves are, like, really invested in getting this done, and everybody is invested in it, you don't see a lot of the other conflicts that happen that aren't in the books. You just have no idea that they happen. Right? And the only indication that they happen then is in the, in the tale of years, you know that there are other people fighting. And I saw, like, that this sets up that it really is the whole world that's at risk, even if this you're just going to see Rohan and Gondor. I agree. It's pretty fabulous. Not bad. So yeah, any last points? Thoughts on the chapter? Also, how Frodo laughs when Sam asks if he if Gandalf is gonna hurt him. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh my god, are you gonna kill me? Frodo just starts cackling in the corner. <laughs> Did that happen in the film? Um, I don't. In the film, I think Sam tells Gandalf not to, asks Frodo not to let Gandalf turn into a frog or something. Like that. I, or a frog of anything. A toad. Natural. A toad. A toad. A toad. A toad. A toad. Yeah. I, I think it's more like Gandalf for him to have like this whole 